0: Well, good morning, and a warm welcome to Bankry Christian Fellowship Church. And if you're a visitor here, or, here, or for the first time, a special welcome to you. hope you'll feel at home here. Yeah. Good morning. Um, as Dave said, we're, we're continuing our series in, in Ecclesiastes this morning. Um, my name is Mark. I'm a pastor in training here, and it's my privilege to, to be able to, to share God's Word with you this morning. So, before I do that, let's read the the passage that we're going to be looking at. It's Ecclesiastes chapter 7, reading from verses 13 to 29. I'll just let you look that up. Ecclesiastes chapter 7, verse 13 to 29. "'Consider the work of God. Who can make straight what He has made crooked?' In the day of prosperity, be joyful, and in the day of adversity, consider, God has made the one as well as the other, so that man may not find out anything that will be after him. In my vain life, I have seen everything. There is a righteous man who perishes in his righteousness, and there is a wicked man who prolongs his life in his evil doing. Be not overly righteous, and do not make yourself too wise. Why should you destroy yourself? be not overly wicked, neither be a fool. Why should you die before your time? It is good that you should take hold of this, and from that withhold not your hand, for the one who fears God shall come out from both of them. Wisdom gives strength to the wise man, more than ten rulers who are in a city. Surely there is not a righteous man on earth who does good and never sins." Do not take to heart all the things that people say, lest you hear your servant cursing you. Your heart knows that many times you yourself have cursed others. All this I have tested by wisdom. I said, I will be wise, but it was far from me. That which has been is far off and deep, very deep. Who can find it out? I turned my heart to know and to search out and to seek wisdom and the scheme of things, "'and to know the wickedness of folly "'and the foolishness that is madness, "'and I find something more bitter than death, "'the woman whose heart is snares and nets "'and whose hands are fetters. "'He who pleases God escapes her, "'but the sinner is taken by her. "'Behold, this is what I found,' says the preacher, "'while adding one thing to another "'to find the scheme of things, "'which my soul has sought repeatedly, "'but I have not found.'" one man among a thousand I found, but a woman among all these I have not found. See this alone I found, that God made man upright, but they have sought out many schemes. This is the Word of God. Let me pray briefly just before we look at these passages. Father God, would you Would you help us to hear what it is you are saying to us this morning in these verses? Would you speak so that we can understand, so that we can know more of who you are, know more of who we are and what you have done for us and how much we need you? Lord, would you speak to us this morning through the power of your Spirit, we pray. Amen. Uh, as David mentioned, we, we've been doing a series in the book of Ecclesiastes, and we don't just jump into this passage. We've been, we've been walking through the book, verse at a time. Uh, Duncan last week looked at the first half of this chapter, and he, he looked at the, the preacher putting life in the perspective of the, the day of death, and how we, we walk in the way of the wise in, in the light of that day of death. In these verses, we're, we're given the preacher's experience of searching for the meaning of life between now and that day of death. That so much of life is, is utterly confusing it seems uh, and, and the preacher is on a quest to try and make sense of it and to help us to make sense of it. And so the title for our, our sermon this morning is why life doesn't make sense? It's as if the preacher has um, got one of those massive jigsaw puzzles. Perhaps you, you got one at Christmas sometime. These thousands upon thousands of pieces, and they all fit together. But at first glance, it's just a complete mystery. And and it's as though the preacher is trying to piece together this jigsaw puzzle without the box top. He doesn't have the picture. And so he, he does what any good puzzle solver would do, and he feels for the straight edges and for the corners. He doesn't know the full picture, but he can assemble a frame from what he knows. And so we do have, in this, in this rather confusing passage, we do have some straight edges. We have some truths that are clear for us to, to at least assemble a frame. And the straight edges that we have in this passage are at the very start and at the very end. We have these these two truths that that begin to build a frame for us to understand why life doesn't make sense. And the first frame, the first straight edge, is in verse 13. And that is, we are not God. Seems pretty obvious, but this is something that we so easily forget. Um, the reason why we cannot make full sense of life is because we are not God. We'll, we'll expand on that. But the second straight edge is found at the end of this passage, and it tells us that we are not good. We are not good. These are our straight edges, and we're going we're to look at those in a bit more detail, but life does not make sense. We cannot work it out because we are not God. And life does not make sense. It's not as it ought to be, because we are not good. There are, there are two points, uh, the two straight edges in all of the muddle of all of the, the pieces that we struggle to fit together. Uh, we'll hang on to those. So verse 13 of our passage, the preacher tells us to consider the work of God. Who can make straight what he has made crooked? It's a, a rhetorical question. Who can make clear what God has hidden? Who can reveal what God has hidden? Uh, the answer is, is obviously nobody. We are not God. If God has made something a mystery, He alone can reveal what, it, what the, the meaning of that mystery is. We cannot work it out by our own wisdom. And then in verse 14, we see that, um, that God is, is sovereign in all things. He is providential in things that are, are good and that are bad. In verse 14, he tells us that we cannot even figure out what tomorrow will bring because it's not us who brings it. Everything, both the, the prosperity of life and the adversity, it ultimately comes from God's hand, not ours. And we like to think that we're, we're the masters of our own destiny, the, the captain of our own souls, as the, the poem Invictus likes to tell us, but it's not true. It's not true. We are not the masters of our destiny. God brings us all things. He is providential over it all. And if he alone brings what tomorrow holds, then, then we cannot fathom what tomorrow will bring. It's in his hands. We cannot make sense of tomorrow by ourselves. And the preacher expands on, on the mystery and the, the seemingly randomness of life. In, in verses 15 to 18, and, and it just doesn't really make sense to him. You know, good things happen to bad people. So we see in verse 15, we've all seen it, and we've all probably wrestled with it. Why is it that good things happen to bad people and bad things to good? We see corrupt politicians living in luxury and impervious to the law. We see drug dealers driving top-of-the-range cars. We see tyrants staying healthy and living long, comfortable lives. while we see innocent children that don't have enough food to eat. We see Christians in parts of the world suffering persecution and even death. We see godly men dying before their time. And it doesn't make sense to us We cannot fathom what God is doing sometimes. And nor can the preacher. The preacher has observed in his vain life that passes like a mist these things. The righteous man dies in his righteousness and the wicked man he prolongs his life in evil doing. It doesn't make sense to him. One thing is clear though. There is no link in this passage between righteous behavior and prosperity. Faith is not linked to wealth or health or ease of life. In fact, if anything, the pattern seems to be the opposite, both here and in fact elsewhere in Scripture. Uh, this blows ideas about how faith and life ought to work together out of the water. So many of us, even if we are Christians, we, we operate as functional beings. Buddhists sometimes, we, we, we take on the system of karma, that you get what you deserve, and we absorb that into our lives so unthinkingly sometimes. We think that, um, you know, if we, if we just have enough faith, if we just go to church often enough, if we pray fervently enough, God will give us the good things. We will get a comfortable life. We will avoid sickness But it's not the truth. The truth is a lot more confusing actually. We don't understand sometimes why good people suffer. We don't understand the the mess of life and, and why what we see bad people prospering. It doesn't make sense to us. But let's not draw the conclusion that the the preacher is just talking nonsense here, because actually there is truth in what he observes. And he goes on in in verse 16 and 17 to draw some inferences from this. He says something about how we ought to live in light of what he sees in the randomness of life here. He says, if you want to live long and prosper, well, this really isn't in your control. You can try good deeds, you can try wisdom and righteousness, but but long life and prosperity is really not in your control. You, by your good deeds and wisdom, cannot add a single day to your life. You can try prayer and church attendance and Bible study and giving money to the church, but you'll only succeed in wearing yourself out. That's his meaning, I think, in verse 16, where he says, be not overly righteous do not make yourself too wise. Why should you wear yourself out? He's not saying that we should dabble in a little sin or foolishness, but he is saying that if your goal is long life and prosperity, you cannot get it by your own actions, no matter how wise or righteous they seem. It's not in your control. But the preacher, he, he isn't undermining the benefit of wisdom and righteousness either. He has a balance here in Verse 17, we see that foolishness is bad. Verse 19, wisdom is good, uh, but we will see it's lacking. He he says in verse 17, be not overly wicked, nor be a fool. Why should you die before your time? You may not be able to, to give yourself long life and prosperity through your wise, righteous actions, but you can certainly shorten your lifespan by being a fool. But the preacher is clear, wisdom is good and so too is righteousness, but they are lacking. In verse 19 he says, wisdom gives strength to the one who has it. Wisdom is good, but it's lacking. By your wisdom you cannot make straight what God has made crooked. And in verse 23 to 24 we see that even if he exerts himself, stretches himself to his full capacity and tries with all of his mind by his wisdom to search the hidden things and the mysteries of life, it still doesn't make sense to him. It still doesn't make sense to him. He said, I will be wise, but it was far from him. It is deep, very deep. Who can find it out? He searches for the reason of life, but life doesn't make sense, not by his own wisdom, because his wisdom comes up short. Uh, righteousness we also see um, is lacking the preacher in verse 20 says surely there is not a righteous man on earth who does good and never sins and, and he illustrates this lack of righteousness for us in verse 21 and 22 have you ever overheard somebody um, criticizing you behind your back you Now your instinct is to to be outraged with that person. How dare they speak about me like that? So often we forget we are, we are critical people and we criticize others behind their backs too. We are easy to judge other people for their lack of righteousness, but we forget that we're just as guilty ourselves. There is no one who is righteous and never sins. And that includes you and it includes me. And the preacher reminds us of that. We are not God, and we cannot make sense of life because of it. This is seen clearly in in the verses 13 to 18. And in verse 19 to 24, we have something of a, a kind of a bridge between our first and our second parts that show us not only are we not God, but we're not good. And this this lack of goodness. Everything that is wrong in the world is what the preacher moves on to next in verses 25 to the end of our passage, then to 29. The preacher, in verse 25, he turns his heart to know and to search out and to seek wisdom and the scheme of things. And he tells us what in particular is that he's examining. It's the, the wrongness of life, the wickedness of folly, and the folly that is madness, In short, he's he's examining sin in all its senseless detail. And what does he discover? In verse 26, he discovers something more bitter than death. And he describes it in terms of a woman whose heart is snares and nets, and whose hands are fetters. This woman is a deadly trap. She is more bitter than death. She entices people in to seduce them and enslave them. Some read these verses and those that follow as a, a sort of biographical tale from the life of Solomon, who fell into sexual sin. Perhaps he remembers the woman who seduced him as more bitter than death. This may well be accurate, but I think there is another way to read these verses while accurately reflecting events of Solomon's life, telling us of a specific woman by whom Solomon was seduced and against whom Solomon sinned, I think they also describe another woman, the woman of sin, or sin personified. In the same way that in Proverbs 8, we see wisdom personified, as a woman who is trustworthy, So here I think we we see sin personified as a woman who ensnares and entraps her willing victims, and she is more bitter than death. In, In Solomon's experience, sexual sin was more bitter than death, but so too is all sin. As Solomon ought to have fled from adultery with godless women, so too must we flee from all sin sin is more bitter than death. Uh, The Bible illustrates for us how all sin can in fact be described in terms of spiritual adultery. All sin is leaving the faithful and loving relationship of our God to seek other relationships. We cheat on God and become enslaved in those adulterous relationships. This is more bitter than death because we are willingly seduced by sin and become enslaved by it instead of living in the freedom and life of God. Living and dying in this state is more bitter than death. And while in verse 26 we see, I think, sin personified, I do also think we see sin exemplified. There is an example here, and the example is specific and it is frightening. We see the deadly snare of sexual sin here. This is a side point, but it is a very important one and worth mentioning, I think. Sexual sin, like any trap, it doesn't look deadly. It doesn't look dangerous. It doesn't look more bitter than death. It looks sweet. That was Eve's experience in the garden, wasn't it? The apple That was forbidden with the fruit that was forbidden it it looked good to eat she bit it and it was more bitter than death this too is the reality of of internet pornography a a multi-billion dollar global industry it sells itself as being sweet but it is more bitter than death Porn traps people. The porn industry preys on and abuses women and men, boys and girls. It ensnares indiscriminately. Perhaps you don't personally know the trap of this kind of sexual slavery. If not, praise God. But, but don't be foolish. You're not immune. Be very careful to run from the snares and nets of this sexual sin. It will seek to ensnare you. Maybe today you know this very acutely. This is a frighteningly common trap that ensnares so many. When you fall into it, you may feel like there is no escape, but there is hope. Let me say that again. There is a way of escape. There is hope. And this is made clear at the end of verse 26. He who pleases God escapes her. Uh, Be careful to note the, the order of the wording here. It doesn't say, if you escape her, you will become pleasing to God. It says, those who please God will escape. That means that if you are a Christian, even if today you are in the snare of sin, you will escape. God is pleased with you, not because of your sinful behavior, but because of Christ's perfect righteousness given to you. When we are in Christ, we are clothed in his righteousness and God is pleased with us. So if you are a Christian, know that you will escape sexual sin and every sin. It may be a long and difficult fight and you may suffer loss of reputation and relationships in the process, but your freedom is worth it and your freedom is sure because Christ died to buy your escape from this sin and every sin that may entangle you. The preacher in Ecclesiastes had much less of this picture than we do today. And so when he spoke these words, I am sure his heart was longing for and his heart was searching for the one who would please God and escape sin. And we must follow him in his search as we come towards the, the end of this passage. he he finds something. In verse 28, the preacher's search of sin, he finds that sin is almost, almost everywhere. And in verse 27 and 28, we see the, the difficulty and confusion that the preacher experiences in his search. He tells us that he has found something in his methodical quest but he also hasn't quite found it. He seems to go round and round in circles, trying to make sense of life with with all its sin and folly. He has this pile of jigsaw pieces, but he just cannot quite fit them all together. The picture is still a mystery to him. So the second half of verse 28, the preacher tells us that he has found something. A man among a thousand, but not a woman. The emphasis of this passage is on how rare and hard a thing or a person to find that he has found is. How rare and hard a thing to find that he has found is. Sin is everywhere, almost, but he has found an exception, it seems, one in a thousand. He has found one man that stands out as different. He tells us that that this one is a man, not a woman. Now, here is where I need to be very clear. This passage is not saying that men are better than women. Your own experience tells you that that is true. It is not saying that women are worse than men in any way, shape, or form. It is not saying that there is a moral difference between men and women. Nor is there any difference in value or worth. It is not saying that women are the source of sin and that they are dangerous and to be avoided. It is not saying these things. And to say anything along those lines would be utterly misogynistic and against the plain teaching of the Bible. So however you understand this particular verse, it cannot include any of those errors. What we know for sure is that in this one man among a thousand... The preacher has found something, or rather someone, rare, unique even. The preacher is in a quest to understand why life doesn't make sense. He is looking for someone who can make sense of it all. He looks around and fails to find anyone perfectly wise. He fails to find anyone perfectly good. He laments that there is no one righteous who does not sin. He tells us of the deadly trap of sin, but that there is someone who pleases God and escapes the bitterness of the woman of sin. There is someone who pleases God. I think that here in verse 28, the preacher catches a glimpse of who this person is, this man. And I think in this verse, we have a glimpse of Jesus. This glimpse of a Savior in verse 28. It gives way to the clear view of the condition of all mankind in verse 29. But in this verse, we also see how exceptional the man of verse 28 is. He stands in contrast to humanity in verse 29. He is the one who has remained upright. But verse 29 tells us God made man upright, but we are have sought out many schemes. God made us to be goods, but we have all gone astray. Each one of us has made our own way. We have sought to live as though we are God. We have committed spiritual adultery against God. We have made a mess of our relationship with our Creator. and We've made a mess of the world in which we live. And life doesn't make sense because we are not good. We've seen that that sin is bitter, more bitter than death, that sin is everywhere, almost. And now we see that we are sinful, but that God did not make us this way. This is crucial for us to grasp, for us and the preacher to begin to make sense of this life. We must get this. The mess of the world makes no sense at all unless we know that man is sinful, but we were not made to be this way. Unless we have an understanding of the truths of, of Genesis 1-3, to life doesn't make sense at all. Genesis 1-3 to tells us that God made man in His image. He made, made us to live in perfect, loving relationship with Him. He made us to live with Him and to enjoy being with Him forever. But While God made us upright, we turned in on ourselves. We became buckled in on ourselves, warped by sin. We chose to ignore God and rebel against his His design for our life. We chose to invent our own scheme for life. This is sin. This is more bitter than death. It is in the hearts of every one of us and it is the reason that life doesn't make sense. And this understanding is crucial because unless we have this proper diagnosis of the problem, we will never get to the right treatment. If we don't have the right diagnosis, we will never have the right solution. The world around us tells us that what we need is better education, and then the world will be better. We need, we need better economies, and then everyone will be happier and life will make sense. We need, we need social reform. And then life will make sense. And we'll be kinder to each other. The truth here is that we need a Savior. We don't need education or economics. We need a Savior. And that is where the preacher takes us to. You know, the preacher has sought and scrambled to make sense of life. Like he's trying to put it all together. This jigsaw puzzle without a box top. He doesn't have the picture of how it all fits together. But what he does know is that we are not God, and we are not good, and so life does not make sense. But he is left with these, the middle pieces of the jigsaw. He catches a glimpse of the face of Christ, perhaps, in these pieces. But we have such a clearer picture than the preacher had. We have such a clearer picture because we have the New Testament. We have the writings about the person and work of Jesus Christ who makes absolute sense of life. The preacher in his pursuit of the sense of life, he had the frame, but much of the rest remained a mystery. We have such a wonderful advantage that the mystery has in so many ways been revealed to us. Paul In writing to the the church at Rome, he ended his letter like this. He said, Now to him who is able to strengthen you according to my gospel and the preaching of Jesus Christ, according to the revelation of the mystery that was kept secret for long ages, but has now been disclosed, and through the prophetic writings has been made known to all nations according to the command of the eternal God to bring about the obedience of faith to the only wise God be glory forever through Jesus Christ. Amen. The New Testament gives us the answer to the one who makes sense of life, the one who is truly wise and fully God, fully good, the one whom, who pleased God completely, escaped falling into the deadly trap of sin. This man that the preacher sought but never clearly saw is Jesus Christ. He is the one who never fell into sin, but the one who took our sin on him. He lived a perfect life, died to destroy the power of death and sin. His perfect righteousness is now ours if we trust in him. Although we may have sought out many schemes instead of living the life God intended for us, he comes and restores us so we can live upright lives once again. And while so much of life may still remain a mystery, may still not make sense to us because we are not God, one thing is sure. God is sovereign. We are sinners, but Christ is is a wonderful Savior. And He not only makes sense of life, He sets us free to live life with Him.
1: Let's pray together. Let's pray. Our Father, as we have heard Your Word, we have such a sense of the truth of your word. Just like the preacher who wrote these words so many years ago, we see how confusing our world is, how unpredictable the events of the world are. And so we today thank you for this word that you have brought to us through your servants. We thank you that in the midst of unpredictability and confusion, we have hope in Christ. We have hope that the world is not a random succession of events, but that this world is headed to a definite place, a place where Christ is all and Christ is in all. Thank you that this hope comes to us uniquely in him. And we pray, Father, that the reality of who Jesus is and what he has come to accomplish would be a comfort, a comfort to each one of us here, a comfort to each one of us who are part of this church family. Lord, we pray that you would draw near to those who this day are in the midst of anxiety. And Lord, that you would reveal Jesus to them afresh. Come to those who are sick and help them to see that even this frowning providence of sickness, behind it is the smiling face of God, our Heavenly Father. Be near to those who are waiting. Be near to those who are desperate. Be near to those who are lonely. And Lord, may Jesus be all in all for them. And we do specifically again want to pray for our students associated with this church family, those returning to university, those going for the first time. Pray, Father, that you would be with them Each day, Lord, that you will be before them, Lord, introducing them to the right people at the right time, opening the right doors for them. Lord, we do pray that they would prosper in their studies, but more than that, we pray that they would prosper in their relationship with Christ. We thank you for the work of UCCF uh, in, in universities and colleges throughout the land, and we pray, Father, that as uh, for events that have taken place and those that are yet to take place, Lord, that you would do what only you can do, that you would take the seed of the word, plant it in the hearts of those who hear it, and produce a rich harvest. We pray particularly for the staff worker in Aberdeen, for Alex. We pray that you would encourage him in in this work that he's given himself to and may the Christian unions locally and throughout the land see much fruit. Lord, we must pray for our nation at this time. Uh, Lord, we have never known a season like it. And Father, we do pray for the royal family this day. We pray for King Charles and his wider family. We pray that you would bring comfort and we particularly pray for them and for our nation as we look to the state funeral for Queen Elizabeth tomorrow. We thank you for the faith of Elizabeth. Thank you that her hope was and is fully now in Christ. And we do pray, Father, that something of real clarity about that hope in Christ would be heard by all tomorrow. We pray for our new Prime Minister and for her government, and we pray, Father, that they would seek to govern in righteousness. Lord, these are difficult days, difficult decisions to make, and so we pray that you would be guiding the hands of those who will make those big decisions. Lord, right around our world, this confusion, this unpredictability prevails, or so it seems. And no more clearly do we see that than where there is war. And so we pray again today, Father, that you would raise up peacemakers and Lord, that the way to peace would be found, particularly in Ukraine, we ask that. We remember our brother Josh serving you there. Thank you that you are with him, Lord, that he is deepening in his trust for you as he serves you in that place. We do pray, Lord, that you would bring peace and that for our brother Josh, you would bring fruitfulness in his ministry. Lord, we are in your hands. And when we see all that goes on in our world, we are so thankful for that, to be in the hands of the God who knows the end from the beginning, who will accomplish all of his purposes. Oh, Lord, we are delighted today to be found in Christ and with all of the security and encouragement that brings to us. Lord, may that make us true worshipers as we go into this new week, living for Jesus, trusting in Jesus, worshiping Jesus with all that you've given us, as we ask it in his precious name. Amen.